Hello, and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast that explores compelling ideas in some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Brittany. And I'm Chris. And this week we are continuing our Magician's Watch Through, talking about Season 2, Episode 5, Cheat Day. Chris, can you give us a recap of what happens? Mm Mm-hmm. Quentin abandons magic for a corporate job in the non-magical world, where he meets Emily, the former Breakbill student involved with the death of Alice's brother Charlie. The two commiserate over their traumas, blaming magic itself for adding on to their problems. Meanwhile, Penny is unable to perform magic with his newly healed hands, so he returns to Mayakovsky for help. We find out that Mayakovsky was Emily's lover, and was banished to Antarctica as a result of their affair and Charlie's death. He has Penny do seemingly menial tasks, until he reveals that he is aware that magic is fading, and he's storing magical energy in batteries to repair. Quentin and Emily get drunk and use illusion magic to disguise themselves as Mayakovsky and Alice, with each getting a version of the intimacy that they miss. The next morning, Quentin feels worse and tells Emily that he won't continue their magical affair. Julia learns that she is pregnant by Renard and attempts to terminate the pregnancy, with Katie supporting her. However, the fetus protects itself by magically compelling Julia's doctor to kill herself. In Fillory, Elliot is anxious after he learns that Fenn is pregnant, and then he survives an assassination attempt by Baylor, a member of Philorians United, or the Foo Fighters, an organization dedicated to driving out Earthlings from Fillory. Against Margot's objections, Elliot spares Baylor's life and asks his advice on how to govern Fillory. We also find out that Fenn is a former member of Philorians United, sent to infiltrate Elliot's court, and though her loyalties have shifted, she's unsure if Elliot would understand. The episode ends with Quentin seeing an apparition of Alice at a street corner, mouthing, help me, before she disappears. Although I would say that, like, I never interpreted it that it was the fetus that did the sort of magic to prevent the abortion from happening. I always interpreted it as it was Reynard. Yeah, I mean, I, I assumed it as, like, Reynard's magic led to a spell that is protecting the fetus. Mm-hmm. Right? Because I don't think it's protecting Julia. I know, but it, I guess the way you said it made it sound like the fetus had a will mm. that, like, it would not have at that, that point. That makes sense. Yeah, it's, a, it's an important <laughs> distinction. Yeah. So, just your average episode. Yeah. Why don't we get into our magic moments? What do you have? For one, I love that Quentin's office job is at a company called Plaxco, which, like, I'm guessing is, like, for plastics and things like that, but it's just the most... Boring sound. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Drunnings. Mm, Precisely, yes. And the co-workers that he works with are... Oh, wow. Just, like, ridiculous. (laughs) This one co-worker who uses the coffee machine to make soup... (laughs) And everyone is masturbating at work and <laughs> drinking on the job. and Like, what kind of place is this? <laughs> exactly. Well, it's also just like, yes, corporate America is amoral at best. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's just such it an... It seems so fun to work there. <laughs> yeah. It's just such an abrupt difference from the magic of the show, mm-hmm. you know? But I'm like, there are many more interesting things that you could do, mm-hmm. especially if you have magic abilities to forge documents. <laughs> <laughs> you could get a lot of different jobs. Yeah, I mean, but it sounds like this is just a job that is the easiest thing to, to gain a lot of money, which uh, also shows the skewed desires of Quentin and Emily after they leave magic, where it's about comfort and not about purpose. Yeah, especially when they have magical abilities and could actually help people in the world, you know? Totally. Uh, They don't care about that. (laughs) And if they're working for a plastics company, it's like they're actually doing active harm in the world. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no. (laughs) I also loved... Some of the examples that Margot and Elliot have when they're discussing how to handle the political disobedience they're seeing <laughs> and executions attempt. and mm-hmm. things like that. And they have things like the Atlantis Uprising <laughs> and two defenestrations of Prague <laughs> and then the Cuban Missile Crisis with a question mark. <laughs> or diplomacy? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Did diplomacy work here? <laughs> 
yeah, just just excellent. Uh, also showing their intelligence, their like worldliness. Well, um, that they were looking things up. Yeah. They were studying this purposefully. They're, yeah, they're taking it seriously. And then just, you know, Mayakovsky. Mayakovsky, yes. <laughs> I personally love the perspectives that both Penny and Mayakovsky have for each other, mm. like on each other. Penny says, the drunk perv in the igloo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, that's his summation of Mayakovsky and Mayakovsky's summation of Penny, if he doesn't do what he says, is... You'll be fancy scarf wrapped around an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. delightful. Yeah. <laughs> Them interacting is very fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Mayakovsky having no problem making fun or calling Penny out on losing his magic and everything that's happened with his hands, right? He's like, it's not that you can't do anything. You can still grab a hold of things. You can still wave hello. Like, <laughs> you know, and I also just love how when Mayakovsky's like, you should take a break. He just brings two bottles of vodka, yeah. one for each of them. <laughs> yeah, that's the funny thing that, like, even though he interacts with people in general this way, he definitely seems like he has a higher esteem for Penny than he did for Quentin Absolutely. and Alice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Penny, he sees potential in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um,. The last time we saw Mayakovsky, the last thing he told Quentin was, go be happy, do something with your life, and like live to prove me wrong, mm-hmm. which now what we see Quentin doing, it's very much not what he's doing. Yeah, so <laughs> he's, true. He's not proving Mayakovsky wrong. Mm-hmm. Versus Penny, he was like, you can travel, you're free, like, do these things, but then is also giving him advice that he himself wouldn't take, you know, so it's just, his relationship with Penny is, is very different. Absolutely. With Quentin. Yeah. And it's great because Penny also will push back in a way that Quentin doesn't. Yeah, Quentin will just complain, Penny will yell at him. <laughs> yeah, or he, like, listens to what he has to say and he's like, well, I'll meditate on that, yeah. <laughs> which I think is actually true. Mm-hmm. I think he's he's being serious, but it's just a funny sort of sentence coming from Penny. Totally. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what other magic moments did you have? Well, yeah, also have to mention that when Penny arrived in the South Pole, Mykowski said, this is not Mykowski's home for the magically inert, <laughs> which is... <laughs> Just a great sentence. Mm-hmm. And obviously the moment that he tells him to make the table into sawdust. Do not worry, I give you tool. And it's like the smallest little like Sand. sanding yeah, stick. Exactly. Not <laughs> so a power ridiculous. tool at all. It's, yeah, it's just awful. But then eventually he's like sleeping in the pile yes. of the sawdust. <laughs> <laughs> It was all just ridiculous. Yes. (laughs) Another thing that was just a very fun, ridiculous, sad comment uh, was when Elliot was brought a new batch of champagne that Mm -hmm. they're trying out. And he was like, at least you figured out the carbonation issue. We had to dump the last batch in another world. Which, again, is a great line, like, humorously, but also shows their entitlement. Yeah. Like, they're not only changing fillery, but now they're dumping things in other worlds. Yeah. Although, I think that they might have said that, like, nobody was living there. Maybe. I, I, might, but... I might be wrong, but even so, there might be other creatures that you don't yeah. know about, and, you know. But, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just, like, the idea that whatever magic they're using to deal with carbonation causes this incessant bubbling mm-hmm. that, like, might not ever stop. <laughs> but the last thing I wanted to mention is Quentin's email to Alice's parents, mm. because this was the first time, actually, even though I've watched the show multiple times, that I was like, hey, why don't we pause and actually read what he wrote? And it was actually a, a surprisingly good letter. Mm-hmm. Uh, his email response to Julia was quite pathetic yes so, <laughs> very 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 subpar so um uh, this one was actually a meaningful one yeah before we move on to our next section which is setting in society what do you have 
yeah, I had a few things here. One small one to just get out of the way is when Katie and Julia are just in Julie's apartment with a bunch of 40-year-old newspapers. <laughs> and I'm just like, where did you get all of these newspapers? These should be in an archive somewhere. <laughs> you are not treating them very well. Someone clearly has, but you're not going to. <laughs> did you rob an archive? Exactly. <laughs> I also, of course, saw Julia's pregnancy as having important parallels with our own world. Absolutely. Especially yeah. in the United States in the last year. I mean, always, but yes. Yes, absolutely. Here. Um, she talks about how it just won't end, and mm -hmm. obviously we see how the pregnancy is protected via whatever magical spell is on it, and so she continues to have to carry the result of her being raped mm -hmm. and have it literally eat away at her body and she can't escape that as women have less and less access to abortion in our country women around the world don't have access to birth control sexual agency abortions other kinds of of really important rights or people with uteruses yeah thank you yeah it's just a pretty powerful metaphor for the ways that society can force those kinds of things on women. Mm -hmm. um, and Reynard kind of personifies a lot of those violences against people with uteruses. Yeah, it's a violence that keeps on doing violence mm -hmm. for, I mean, through the psychological trauma, certainly, and also for Julia and many people in the world in another way where... Yeah, it's forced to be a part of their body in a way that they don't want. And people trying to prevent access for people to decide what is and isn't okay to be in their body. Yeah. Yeah, she's like, it just keeps getting worse and worse. Yeah, that's true. I mean, and, and the fact that people would want to force those in situations like this to undergo the pregnancy and then the birth process and then whatever happens after that. Yeah, I found that powerful and, and important to touch on. And it also, I think it some of the complications or some of the nuances bring up some of these issues too. Katie mentions that the magical abortions that were created were created at a time before modern medicine. Therefore, they're like blow torches and that they can cause a lot of damage to the person carrying the child. So there hasn't been a improved version, which I think also highlights <laughs> the elitism of magicians, that they haven't felt the need to continue to refine those kinds of spells because they often seem to come from, at least in the United States, they have access to power at that point, And so they'd have access to a medical procedure if they needed to. Whereas people around the world still don't have access to modern medicine. Mm -hmm. And so those kinds of magics are still going to be really important for so many people. Yeah, and it also shows the patriarchy and misogyny that is a part course, as yeah. well, because it probably wouldn't be that difficult for magicians to magically figure out how to do magical abortions that could even be easier on the body or, you know, whatever the situation is. But no one's cared to do that, or maybe funding is denied for researching it, or, you know, there's all sorts of things. Like, for example, mammograms can be really painful and stuff, or at least that I've heard, yeah. when you can get the same information if you did something like an MRI, something that would be much less exposing and uh, potentially painful and uncomfortable and you know all of these things but it's like well why would we pay for those mris when they can have a less comfortable more vulnerable and uncomfortable situation it's yeah. just if exams had to squeeze the balls of or penis of people i'm pretty sure that they would approve other methods mm -hmm. to uh see what's going on there but you know patriarchy exactly and then the last thing i want to talk about on this subject was how the doctor 
at the clinic she goes to talks about how if she suspects abuse, she has to report it. Mm-hmm. And I think I've talked on the podcast before how, as an educator, I'm also a mandated reporter. I understand the intentions behind mandated reporters, but I also see some of the dangers that that can bring as well, mm-hmm. because not everyone wants to report. You know, here, obviously, the doctor says nobody's above the law, and Reynard is literally, you know, a <laughs> god. But there are also people in our society who are above the law, not to mention, what, 6% of sexual assaults end in a prosecution, you know, like, Mm -hmm. that is something that the criminal justice system is not built to handle with actual justice. Well, it's not just not built to handle, It's, it's purposefully built to excuse men for their violence against yeah, exactly. Others. And that means 94% are above the law. Yeah, yeah. So having a mandated reporter have to bring someone into that kind of system, I think, can be really problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that in a lot of colleges, there are advocates that are not mandated reporters mm-hmm. that are set aside for students to be able to understand their options how to process what resources they have available to them without having to do that. But I'm in a difficult position because I try to tell students that before they would actually tell me anything. Mm -hmm. But I've had at least one instance where a student didn't know that. And so they divulged something to me and I had to report it. And that's not what the student wanted. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's, that's just really, really difficult. Yeah, this doctor is obviously seen as someone who is trying to help and who wants to make things work for Julia however she can, but she is also working within a system that works against people who are sexually assaulted, and that has its own complications to bring it to bear, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, another interesting aspect, I think, with this situation with Julia that's really sad, but I think very understandable, is that once she gets the pregnancy test and it says positive, she is upset, she throws her glass, but then she turns the anger on herself, Mm. saying that trying to summon this goddess was the stupidest thing that I've ever done. I should have known better. I knew the difference between magic and miracles. And so she's blaming herself when she has no blame. She has no fault. She didn't do anything wrong to cause this. But that doesn't mean that a person wouldn't still feel that way, that they should have, that they should have done something differently or they should have known better or, you know, whatever the situation is. But the only blame falls with the person enacting the violence. Yeah. And the people who maintain systems that further that violence. Yeah, and allow those who do that violence to not be held accountable for their actions. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, good point. Well, my other point in Setting Society is just to talk a little bit about the Florians United. Absolutely. about this group of... (laughs) commoners, as they're called by Pickwick. (laughs) But yeah, people who don't have access to wealth or political power, for the most part, it seems like, who do not like a system in which (laughs) earthlings, for no reason, get to rule over them. Which I appreciate. It's great to see. I I totally forgot that this was a plot point. And I think it's particularly interesting seeing Fenn as a former member of them, because we've also seen Fenn be one of the loudest voices for helping the people of Fillory mm-hmm. and that being a priority for her. And I think it does show Elliot and Margot's character that they have also prioritized that as well. They've listened when they need to listen to that and that that is something that they care about. But at the same time, they can't stop being earthlings. Mm-hmm. They can't stop being colonialist in a way. Mm-hmm. They can't suddenly have grown up there and be connected to the community. Exactly. And so we see Baylor, this attempted assassination, and we've seen Fenn, and like, yeah, I can understand why these people feel this way. Not to say that I think they should assassinate Elliot, <laughs> uh, but... Definitely not Elliot. No, but... <laughs> no, no. 
but it is just a really important and compelling element of what it means to become a ruler of a magical realm that you are not from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the fact that they're like, we are the High King, the High Queen, and you're in our castle, and he's just like, your castle is on our land. Yeah. And yeah, that that their aim is to fight until a Florian sits on the throne. Like, mm-hmm. that's their aim. And I think it's particularly... I mean, it, it's always valid for people who are being colonized yeah. to be like, no, get out of here. But I think also in addition, the fact is, this isn't a new colonization. They also have a huge history of colonization mm-hmm. and it was from someone from earth martin chatwin that caused so much destruction and failing of their crops and people who were starving just because we don't see the people who are starving we know that they've been starving for a while which means people have died yeah which means people are malnourished and colonialism does that violence to the land and the people mm-hmm wherever it is in history, whatever continent, or in this case, whatever planet. And yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm on the side of the Foo Fighters, minus the assassination part, yeah. you know. But it's also understandable why they feel like they have to go to extreme measures, because this has been going on for, you know, there, there was a break bill's notebook in the armory from the 1800s right and so so who knows how long this has been going on and having the pickwick family who describes commoners with disdain like having them be the stewards in the meantime hasn't helped the people either yeah and yeah they want a coup they want to overthrow this and it's completely understandable and valid why absolutely yeah Well, what about you? What other points in setting in society did you have? Yeah, so those were two that I I was really thinking about, but I have just a couple, like, little small things. Mm -hmm. Bringing up the patriarchy again, Pickwick says that the queen may voice her opinion, but the ultimate decision is made by the high king. Of course. And she's just like, this is what the patriarchy smells like. It's not the freshest. And it's just a great line because it's so Margot, and it's... It's a line from somebody who came from a patriarchal society as well. Mm -hmm. So it's like, this is not a surprising thing to her. She's annoyed by it. She doesn't meet it with shock. She's just like, it's not the freshest. (laughs) And it's her way of using her voice that Mm -hmm. she does have the right to to use. She does have a say, an important say, in those chambers, even if she doesn't have the final say. But Mm -hmm. Margot is going to use that. She's going to use everything that she has and more. Yeah, and I think that it also shows here that it's... We love Elliot at the same time. Here, even though I agree with his aim... Mm Mm-hmm and the decision not to execute someone. I also, we also have to acknowledge that he is benefiting from the patriarchal system that allows him to override Margot's voice. Yeah. That's a problem. And you saw on Margot's face the, the, the look of betrayal mm-hmm. that she has from this. And, and the outrage, like, why you, my best friend, why would you be participating in this, yeah. you know? And uh, that I think it's the, the beginning of some ruling together, but not equally issues that we'll see come up. Yeah. And then the other thing that I wanted to mention is just Penny talking to Dean Fogg mm-hmm. and saying... So you can cure your hands just fine, but mine you can do nothing about. I just, yes, it's a different situation, blah, blah, blah. He was like, well, these are my hands and those were created for you. They weren't your original hands, whatnot. But I I think, it, yeah, it does point to the disparity in care that different communities get and the fact that people who make more money have higher paying jobs, even if they have to, in in our country currently, uh, 
pay more, you know, under the Affordable Care Act, like pay more for the health plans that give them access and give them different choices that they can choose among health plans and, you know, all of this. Mm-hmm. E- even if it costs more money, that is still giving them access to potentially better medicine or more exclusive doctors who maybe have the elitism in the elitism in them that they would prefer just to treat and cater to well-off people of, mm-hmm. of the country or the world and also the fact if you make enough money whether somebody is in your plan or not you can just pay them to do treatments operations whatever whereas other people who are disadvantaged by society they don't have that same access to care yeah and Penny is suffering from it. And and if and if he wasn't a student, if he was the dean, if he was someone else more, quote-unquote, important, would they have cared more and tried to help more with his hands? Maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, really good point. Since we're still on setting, we wanted to add our little pop-up section of Fillerine Further, comparing some things in the book versus the TV show. And now that we've kind of come to a conclusion with the entire arc regarding Martin and their time in Fillory, Alice dying, and then Quentin going into the muggle world, basically, that's kind of where the first book ends. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, there, there are just some very big differences, some of which are reasons why we decided to go with the show and and not the books martin the 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 beast entering in the first episode that is nowhere in the first Mm -hmm. book they stumble trip and fall down a hill basically into a mess with the beast in fillery it's not until they deal with that alice fights against him turns into an infant, destroys him, and then later Quentin has a conversation with Jane. It's like, oh yeah, that was my brother, mm-hmm. and you know, things like that. So this whole setup of the trajectory of the first season and going into the second of the show was not at all what it was in the books. So yeah, it's, it's very different, and I think that's part of the book's work in trying to shake up typical adventure epics and how characters come across the adventures that they stumble upon versus like you know from the beginning where it's heading yeah it's not like there's a chosen one there's Mm -hmm. an evil antagonist who's always there behind the scenes Mm -hmm. you know the books are much more meandering yeah they're much more about just kind of what it's like to live quentin's life and Mm -hmm. uh eventually yeah to find out fillory's real to try to escape from his life to go there and try to find adventure and being sucked into wider machinations that uh, is resolved pretty quickly as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it's not like it needs 13 episodes in a season plus a few more <laughs> to uh, that each have their own kind of arc and their own mom- narrative momentum. Um, it's just such a different format. It really, I think, follows more Quentin's depression journey coinciding with like quarter life crisis Mm -hmm. what does it mean to be in school here have some of your dreams be met but then you're out of school on what do you do with your life and things aren't as easy or as fun as you thought they would be and then you make really bad choices screw up the relationship that you're in through this threesome and then use fillery as an escape to not have to deal with the ramifications of that and then that leads you into this quest that you think is going to be great which leads you into your ex dying to save you all yeah um so yeah it, i think it the the book names are, are are slightly different and then at the end of the book basically he stays in fillery for i think it was a few years and mastered magic basically like became a master and then ended up going back to earth giving it all up and working in a desk job so yeah it's a bit different and then also martin's 
whole background and everything is like not even known mm -hmm. until way after the fact. I mean, after he's dead, there was like a little part of a sentence comment that Jane made. I think that he was abused, but that was basically it. And then you find out more later, but um, having that enter the story when it did let them in the show make Martin a much more interesting, compelling, complex character. Absolutely. That, uh, yeah, actually makes his, his death sad. You kind of touched on this. The, the timeline is very different in the books where Quentin and the others graduate from break bills before they ever go to fillery. They actually go through all three of the years there, and so... Well, four. Be four well, it's three for Quentin, because Quentin and Alice skipped, right, right. skipped a grade, apparently. <laughs> they were so magically talented. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, they, you know, it's they're in a different place when they are confronted with Fillory, in that they are postgraduate, and they're trying to figure out what to do with their lives, instead of still being in school, and then Fillory kind of and the beast kind of taking them out of it. Mm -hmm. And from what we've seen so far, none of them are taking classes. You know, Penny's the only one who's studying magic in any way, and that's because <laughs> it's been taken away from him. Is I like... know, are they all on academic leave? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's just they are, again, caught up in a narrative that changes their place in life rather than the kind of mundanity of, going through school and finishing it mm. and finding out life is like afterwards and then Fillory kind of confronting them there. So the narratives are definitely doing different things, but for many of the reasons, uh, including I think the, the fantastic ensemble that we have here, rather than the book being entirely from Quentin's perspective, and then of course having Martin, I think that the show has a lot of really, really extra compelling details and information and yeah, narrative thrust that helps us to have more interesting things to talk about on a podcast like this. Well, I mean, it also has Penny for us to talk about. I mean, absolutely. And talk about his POV every time. Yes. Although I don't think we're going to this time, but we could. <laughs> <laughs> but why don't we move into our next section, which is themes and schemes? What were you thinking about? Yeah, I was just really focused on this idea of life after magic or trying to give up magic and the idea of a cheat day. As you are giving it up, what does it mean to do that in spits and sparts? And that's <laughs> yeah, not what that is. I don't know. <laughs> Fits and starts. I have no idea what yeah. it is, but that's something now. Yeah, I, I just find it interesting. It's framed pretty early on in the conversation between Quentin and Emily that nobody gives up magic because life is peachy, mm -hmm. right? That it's done because they see it as an issue and they are basically blaming magic for the issues that they've seen. I think that there is a, are some parallels to ideas of addiction that you could see here of people trying to, to cut off themselves from something that makes them act in unhealthy ways. Mm -hmm. Or even like not an addiction necessarily when people do specific diets and it's mm -hmm. like, well, we have to like having a cheat day allows me to stay with not eating blank or, you know, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 You know, we see this big difference between the two of them in that Quentin is still using magic for small things, you know, something as small as opening a jar, mm -hmm. even though he's doing so after he changed all of his life to escape magic. It's still a habit that he's not willing to break. And Emily just sees even those small things as problematic but then we see her, after especially she's had some drinks in her, probably overuse magic. Mm -hmm. And yeah, she she talks about it doesn't count to do magic on a cheat day, but she wants to keep doing it after the cheat day's over. Quentin says you can't cheat every day because then it's not a cheat day, then it's just your life is different. I found their behaviors as they're drinking, they're smoking, they're doing these spells together to be kind of really immature to like be like it reminds me of like middle school and the kinds of things that people will do is yeah they'll go out late at night with someone who maybe they're interested in and make poor choices and you know they even say at one point like let's make bad decisions together yeah you know 
I'm just like, let's not. What if we didn't make bad decisions? <laughs> well, I think it, that brings it to a really important point of it all is that they're blaming magic mm-hmm. rather than their own decisions. Even when they're mostly not using magic, they willingly embrace the idea of making bad decisions. Yeah. Then I'm talking about for every spell we cast, it creates another problem. And then we cast another spell to try to fix that one. And then it makes everything worse. And I don't think that that's true. Well... Most of our main characters are struck now <laughs> with different things that, yes, are in the aftermath of, of magic. But Martin even going to Fillory and starting to drain the wellspring and all of the things that transpired after that, well, that happened because of abuse that he was facing in a completely non-magical setting. Mm-hmm. And so it's like to blame everything on magic and it just makes problems worse. Yes, I could imagine that magic can magnify problems if you do problematic things with it. You also see someone like Penny who says, I hate magic. Mm -hmm. I hate all of you. But like, that doesn't mean that everything he's using magic for is bad. And that doesn't mean that he wants to give it up. His magic also allowed him to help Victoria, this person that was being tortured from that situation and help save Josh from being stuck in an underground (laughs) little psychedelic greenhouse, you know? And so it's not as simple as I think that they're trying to make it out to be to not have to deal with the complicated emotions that come with involvement in things that turned out really bad. Yeah, absolutely. It honestly, that kind of reminds me of our conversations about what the purpose of magic is. How, for many, it is to have control over everything. Mm-hmm. And so if people are coming in with that mindset, maybe it might be true that they'll just keep using magic to try to fix what's gone wrong because their goal is to have complete control. And magic is the tool they're using to try to have that happen. But I think that also illuminates one of the problems with that paradigm. Because people who use magic shouldn't want to just have control over everything. Mm -hmm. But instead should want to help, should want to be in community, should want to maybe even just learn. But, you know, there's so many other reasons why you could use magic that wouldn't lead into you know, what becomes a problematic obsession with control. Mm-hmm. And when you have that problematic obsession with control, yeah, magic becomes something that can cause these waves of problems that just get bigger and bigger as you're using more and more magic. But it's because you're doing so in a way that is not at peace with what's around you, not at peace with the way that the fact that you can't control everything. Yeah, true. And I think it it uh, <laughs> kind of forgets the the source of magic. If we're talking about pain being involved in some way, then people who have the most pain as a result of really terrible upbringings a lot of the time, or the result of chemical imbalances, or the result of other people doing violence to you and like systemic problems you know all of these different aspects can influence people and like in a way that makes them more have a harder time making good decisions as Elliot is always an excellent example (laughs) of (laughs) even if they want to sometimes they're just trying to get by in any way they possibly can. So uh, I think the problems that come with magic is the problems that come with the people themselves uh, that they haven't dealt with, what that they can't deal with, that they haven't healed from or whatnot. Totally. I, I do find that being the focus of Quentin and Emily's story interesting compared to Penny and Mayakovsky, mm-hmm. who are also talking about losing magic. And Mayakovsky's trying to tell Penny, 
give up on magic. This is an off-ramp where you can give it up before you're forced to do so, before you don't have a choice in the matter. Yet, Mayakovsky, seeing that coming, starts preparing to be able to continue to use magic even after he has lost access to it, mm-hmm. but to build the batteries so that he can maintain that longer than anyone else. Yeah, we see, I think, a couple other examples of people trying to deal with what life after magic might be, and Mykoski giving advice that he doesn't take himself. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it could be a interesting paradigm to have of, okay, we're going to lose access to this. Well, I know that that's coming. Let's do some of the groundwork now so that that transition isn't difficult if it's going to happen. Uh, hey, we are going to lose access to fossil fuels once we've used them all up. Uh, maybe we should start transitioning so that that doesn't lead to another form of the end of the world, uh, you know. But, of course, people are more focused on, well, I want what's best economically in the short term. Yeah, those kinds of far-sighted ideas can be difficult. People might not want to give up something now, even if they know they'll they have to in the future. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I was thinking similarly, like, this kind of interesting idea of, like, what people will do for magic. hmm Because Mykoski was willing to have an incorporate bond so he could never leave the South Pole, and he would be stuck there for however long teaching students that yeah. he hates just so that he wouldn't have his magic taken away. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like the, even that cheat day thing, even if you are saying you don't want this for specific reasons, the pull, the draw that magic has on people, uh, I think is interesting, especially when it comes to people that could have other options. For example, Quentin... We know he comes from a privileged background. I mean, he was applying to grad school at Yale and we, at least from the books, you know, yeah. Nice house, nice, We don't ever hear him say, I'd like to go to Yale, but I don't know if I can afford it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And so I think it's really interesting when Mayakovsky is telling Penny that magic is failing and it's going to be bad for magicians once it does, so consider getting out early. Because for Penny, his life prior to going to break bills was bad. Magic actually does give him access to things that he never had access to before. Even things like not constantly hearing voices. Mm -hmm. So it's a very different thing for Quentin to choose because he's grieving to like leave magic behind and this is bad or whatnot and be able to go be bored at a job. Well, Penny can't go be bored at a job because he hears everybody's thoughts and hopefully not them masturbating in other rooms. (laughs) God. Oh dear. (laughs) This is, this is Penny's existence, right? Exactly. And so he's doing these ridiculously tedious tasks for a ridiculous man in order to try to hope that he can gain access to magic again. And for Penny, just being able to travel, what does that give him? We know that he's very intelligent, but when it comes to everything else that he's constantly bombarded with from people who don't have mental wards up, his intelligence doesn't translate to really anything in the non-magical world in in really sad ways. Yeah. So for Penny, magic is life in a way that it is just not for other people. Mm Mm-hmm. Once again, Penny overcoming more than almost every other character. Yes, I do love Penny. (laughs) Well, why don't we move on to our, from another point of view, even though it's not Penny, at least we got to talk about him. <laughs> yeah, well, I want to talk a little bit more about Quentin. Yeah, I, I just was so struck by the fact that Quentin couldn't even put up with one stuck jar at his <laughs> company, you know, which, like, 
He only tried to open, like, once. Yeah, and he didn't <laughs> look around for a tool to help him or, like, anything. He just goes straight to magic. And, like, that doesn't surprise me about Quentin. Because I think that him going home and getting this job and, quote-unquote, giving up magic wasn't about giving up magic. It was mm-hmm. about him running, running away, away again <laughs> and making a big dramatic exit. You know what I just thought of? I feel like I need to make a meme of running shoes. The brand is just Quentin. Yeah, right. Exactly. That's what he's best at. Totally. Or worst at. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And he's martyring himself, you Mm -hmm. know? I think that he is putting himself purposefully in a position that is joyless because he thinks he deserves it, because he blames himself. And this is a way of giving himself pain to try to make up for his guilt. Yet, he's also not fully committed to that, because it's hard to fully commit to that. Mm-hmm. You know, self-flagellation isn't fun. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not self-fungulation. No, it's not at all. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, if he's frustrated and he thinks that nothing matters, okay, he'll do some magic. Mm-hmm. But he's so clearly also dealing with his guilt and with how to think about himself and be in relationship with others with all of that guilt. You know, earlier you mentioned how he wrote this email to Alice's parents. Mm -hmm. And while it definitely is much improved compared to (laughs) the email to Julia earlier, it's also still so much about him. He literally writes, I'm not worthy, but she chose to save me. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't just choosing to save you, Quentin. Exactly. <laughs> you know, like he talks about how he should have been a better person and a bit a better man. And it's like, is this actually helpful to them to hear you hating yourself, you attacking yourself, rather than just hearing your daughter died, doing something brave, saving people, saving the world, as he puts it, instead of Yeah, all of this of she died to save me, even though I was never the man she deserved. And like all this other stuff, like it's so self-focused, you know? It's true, but I think that there is part of it that's like she died to save, you know, mentioning other people that they've never met. Like they've actually met him. He spent a night or more at their house. They had at least somewhat of a relationship with him in a way that it might be more meaningful to hear that she died to save someone they actually know rather than like faceless names that they have no understanding of you know yeah sure i just don't think that the i'm worthless well, yes. part of it I mean, that's is actually his depression helpful coming at all. out exactly. in a way that's not very helpful yeah yes. that's the part that i think is just like <laughs> quentin what are you doing when i mean he... it's what he needs more than exactly. necessarily what they need i mean yeah. part of it i think is nice for them to know yeah how she died and and why yeah that she made a loving sacrifice for others mm-hmm. totally and yeah i think that writing them an email at the very is the very least that he can do for them mm-hmm. but yeah he's just clearly so also caught up in this self-centered grieving and guilt you know, it's hard for him to have a relationship with anyone. When he goes and apologizes to Emily about using magic after she spilled on her blouse, he's like, I don't know if you accept my apology, which then, like, shows how he's apologizing for himself, not for her. He gets defensive when she doesn't accept the apology. He, I think, is is still dealing with, like, okay, I, I'm trying to do the right thing, and it's still not enough. It's still not working out. It's still, you know, whatever is kind of going on in his head. And it's why him spending time with Emily is pretty compelling because she is also someone who is doing a lot of similar behaviors and a lot of similar rationale as made most manifest through her illusion spell Mm -hmm. where he looks like Mayakovsky and she looks like Alice. They find whatever intimacy that they were missing or, you know, she wants to hear certain things from him, from Mykoski, and to cuddle. And Quentin needs to tell Alice he misses her and then 
make out with her and probably have sex with her. That physical intimacy, it seems like. Which, again, Quentin, is this what's what's really needed here? Is this really giving honor to Alice and her memory? Oh my god. Not not only that, there's two aspects that are very much not. One is, this is with the woman that was involved in her brother's (laughs) death and Niffin turning. So that's just a whole other thing now that Alice has turned into a Niffin herself. It's just like, no, this is too screwed up. Like, not to be like, you should base all your actions around a person who has died previously, but they died very recently. And like, this is a person that was involved in something that caused them so much pain. Like, yeah. Ah. So that that's somehow the smaller thing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the bigger thing is the disgusting objectification of somebody who broke up with you. Yeah. Someone who said, I'm not going to be in this relationship with you anymore. And the last conversation you had with them, they were like, you can't trap me in here and make me deal with all of this emotional shit. Like... I'm not a prize to be won, and you did actions that hurt me, you yeah. know? And and him just using her image, her body, for whatever he wants to make himself feel better is, yeah, really despicable. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's like the same thing as the Margolem. Mm-hmm. You know, it is using someone's body without their permission. And sure, it's not the body that they are inhabiting, but it's still their body mm-hmm. and it's still, yeah, objectifying it. It's just, yeah, super problematic and I think highlights the extent to which Quentin is not mature enough to <laughs> be in a relationship with Alice to begin with, but to, you know, grieve maturely and mm-hmm. to make choices for his life that are healthy, both in giving up magic half-heartedly and then in all of these things that he does with Emily and especially in that spell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just uh, pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> it's very bad. And then it makes us return to that sex dream he had mm-hmm. with Alice and Julia, his subconscious being like, this'll pass the Bechdel test <laughs> if it's just them two, you know, being like so laughable and absurd. Yeah. And like, this is how you're going to actually treat uh, women that you interact with. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, I, I, I can, as always see some of myself in Quentin, you know, (laughs) like I have written or thought about writing, I'm sorry, letters or emails that are also like, I'm the worst, you know, (laughs) I should never have whatever, you know, and it's like, I've learned to challenge that part of myself of like, this is, this is self-centered. This is about you, not about what an apology should be, which is about the other person and taking, taking accountability, but not being dramatic about it, you know? (laughs) Uh, And so, yeah, I get aspects of that with Quentin, but he just takes it to such an intense degree. And (laughs) maybe magic is a problem. (laughs) He just magnifies problems. (laughs) Yeah, it's just, it's a lot. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's that's the thing that, even though I, I feel quite different than Quentin in a lot of ways, I think probably all people, including myself, when we are confronted with hardships, especially emotional ones, yeah, it can be very difficult to not just be thinking about ourselves in those circumstances. Yeah. Because even if it's a situation where it's like you think something selfish and then you're like, okay, no... I shouldn't be thinking that, or that's not helpful, or no, let's let's reframe my thoughts to this other person and what they're going through, or or whatever the situation is. But like that impulse still is, I think, often there for probably most humans of how this affects me. Yeah, but Quentin drowns in it. Yeah, and he he acts on those things yeah. more than just thinking them. Totally. 
he needs to grow out of that. It's not mm-hmm. something that the world is doing to him. Quentin, why don't you just like go to therapy after <laughs> this situation? For anybody who has depression, they should probably go to therapy after a significant person in their life dies and yeah. they're grieving over it. Like it's probably helpful. And it's also probably a really bad idea to completely isolate yourself mm-hmm. from anyone you know understandable why you don't feel like you can return to school completely understandable but that doesn't mean you shouldn't be trying to seek out ways to process the grief in in healthier ways and maybe revisit that choice to stop taking your (laughs) antidepressants (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, that might be a, a question. <laughs> well, what about you? Whose perspective did you want to explore? It's time to return to Elliot. Yeah. So I was really thinking about his point of view in this episode because there's so many difficult things that he's dealing with. Mm-hmm. Starting with Fen coming over all happy to him and having a rabbit announce that she's pregnant after proclaiming i have the best news (laughs) which i do like fen but here i'm pretty annoyed with fen Mm -hmm. like just because you're happy about this news does not mean that he is happy about this news especially considering other ways that you've been pressuring him to do things that he doesn't want to do and that he's not comfortable with totally so frustrated with that when he gets this news it's being dropped on him in the middle of him struggling with being king and having to deal with the stress of Fillory's magic failing and enemy nations around them and all of the (laughs) curriculum and stuff that Fogg is helping him with, with experts to learn about politics and military and, you know, social systems, you Mm -hmm. know, and everything that could help him for his thesis, which is how to (laughs) rule this world (laughs) and not have everything fall apart. And it's during that that he gets this life-altering news just, dropped on his head it is so evident that he is not happy about it Mm -hmm. but he feels bad showing that he's not happy about it so he tries to fake it for fen yet again he doesn't want to engage sexually with her but sometimes he just feels bad rejecting her and tries anyway and here he's like i am happy yay a baby like that's the most he could muster Mm -hmm. to try and to do a toast to our violently attractive progeny (laughs) you know like he's he's trying to do what he thinks that he should do yeah to interact with her (laughs) but you know she's like clearly you don't seem very happy and then when he tries to open up and explain part of the reason why he's not happy and that he had a terrible father and therefore doesn't have uh, what he says is a proper template <laughs> for how to be a good parent, it's in that moment that he's almost killed by an assassination attempt. Which Margo's like, what was that about? And he just says... I tried expressing my emotions. (laughs) And it's such a funny line, but (laughs) yet again proves that comedy and tragedy can Mm -hmm. coexist in the same sentence. Exactly. Because it's a really tragic thing. Last time he tried to open up and be vulnerable with someone, it was to Mike who was possessed by Martin. Mm -hmm. And then shortly after, he tried to kill them all. Yeah. So, yeah, it's so sad that we know that Elliot needs to open up. He needs to talk to people. He's dealing with so much. But there are times when he does that it all seems to just backfire or something happens. So it's interrupted. And, yeah, it's just, it's a really sad situation. So I was just thinking about the immense pressure he must feel from his own emotions as well as 
finding out that he's going to be a parent against his will and that he has to parent with someone that he doesn't actually really know well and that he would never choose to marry but was forced to if they wanted to try to save magic and the world from Martin and all of that and having all of that be now on your shoulders at the same time that he's been feeling like he's barely holding it together. Just last episode, he used the golem to escape back to break bills for a bit and have a party mm-hmm. and also talk to Fog about his situation and saying that I I don't belong in Fillory and I'm not equipped to be king and I don't know what I'm doing. And I thought that I was going to die and wouldn't have to deal with the ramifications of this and i don't know what to do like it's too much for him Uh, understandably i think that that sort of situation would be too much for almost anyone especially coming off of everything that he was coming off of so feeling like that that he can't be himself and like he's responsible for an entire nation that is currently struggling and he's equipped and Alice just died and he doesn't know if Quentin's ever coming back and and will help with anything and he doesn't have his destructive coping mechanism that he's used for so long Mm -hmm. because they literally don't exist in Fillory so I just think that he would be feeling so entirely trapped yeah then he has to deal with this whole assassination and is trying to get advice from the council and Margot and all of these historical accounts to try to figure out what to do. Because yet again, somebody's life is in his hands. And this pressure that he has that it's not only I have to make these decisions, but I have to make the right decision. Mm-hmm. Because he could just defer to Margot to make the decision. But he's not comfortable with that decision. Like, he just doesn't want to execute someone. Yeah. He's already killed his childhood bully, killed his boyfriend, possessee, and worked to kill the boyfriend, possessor. (laughs) (laughs) Alice died in this process. And it's just like, he doesn't want to be responsible for any more deaths, especially Mm -hmm. ones that don't seem necessary. And probably because he can respect the views of Florians United. Yeah. And, and he doesn't want to be there either. <laughs> he's like, yeah, I'm not equipped to be your king. <laughs> Don't kill me, but <laughs> And so, you know, he just chooses to do the incredibly wise thing, which is actually talk to the Florian freedom fighter. Mm-hmm. How would the Foo fighters fix Fillory? And I I just love that, the wisdom of his decision to go ask Baylor, understanding that maybe the lay people of Fillory have better ideas about what to do with their country than he does as a random foreigner. Yeah. That for some reason is high king. (laughs) So even despite all of the stressful things that are going on in his life, and the things that he feels responsible for, he has the wisdom to make a choice that is not only smart, but is, yeah, wise in long-term thinking Mm -hmm. about actually trying to solve some of Fillory's problems through the knowledge and experiences of the people who have lived in Fillory their entire lives. And who are committed to their beliefs. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, w- I was also thinking about him, like, should he have talked to Margot about making the other decision? Yes. Yeah. But I understand why he didn't. I think, for, from my perspective, I think that he was just like, I know that Margot is not going to agree with this decision, and I don't want it to turn into a fight. I can't handle one other stressful thing, mm-hmm. so I'm going to make this choice. Was it the thoughtful choice for her? No. It was, though, the thoughtful choice for Baylor. Yeah. And I think that him saying that he wants to raise his child in a world that does not just kill its problems away, 
I love, obviously, as a pacifist. <laughs> yeah. But I also kind of wonder if he was using the child as, like, a little cop-out instead of just <laughs> saying, like, no, this is my decision because I don't think that any of us should live in this world. Because totally. I don't think it's just about the potential child. I think that he wouldn't want to execute Baylor even if there was no baby in the picture. Yeah. Because uh, I think that that's who Elliot is. Part of him agreeing to even be the High King was him trying to not continue destructive behaviors in his life. Try yeah. to do something more than just spiral and wilt away. And so it's really nice to see him previously with agriculture and now here with this decision. Really trying to take his responsibility seriously even in the midst of all of the really difficult things that he's dealing with. And in a way that really Quentin is not. Mm -hmm. He's just completely given up his responsibility of being a king there. Doesn't even know what's happening with Fillory, if the wealth rings okay, if, you know, anything. And it doesn't matter to him at, at this point. Yeah, um, marked contrast. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Elliot's trying. And, and he's drowning, but he's trying to still make good, wise, kinder decisions on his way down. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think that his performance is so great, too, because, like, he does kind of constantly seem exhausted mm -hmm. and tired. But he's also pushing through that to, yeah, try to make the best decisions he can, which is just so admirable. Mm-hmm. This is why we love Elliot. Yes, one of the many reasons. <laughs> but why don't we close out our episode and circle back to the cheat day title. What do you think? Yeah, it's not bad. Um, obviously, it highlights what's going on with Quentin and Emily. I don't think it is the catchiest title or that it really connects with any of the other stories in compelling ways. So I find it... Yeah, okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I'm not sure if there would be a different title that would bring everything nicely together. I mean, I, I think even giving up magic might even be a better title. Mm -hmm. Because they obviously are dealing with that in they're trying to give up magic and failing to give up magic. But then it at least brings in, yeah, the Penny and Mayakovsky story. Mm -hmm. um, or maybe just like giving up. Yeah, right? yeah. Something that some people, like Julia, don't have the luxury of doing. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that's going to wrap up this episode's discussion. So what's happening next time on The Magicians? So we're going to be watching episode six, which has the title, The Cock Barons. Is, is this the title of Elliot's current sex tape? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't, I don't even think we need a descriptor. I, I think that's all we really need to take us into the next episode. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode of Geek Between the Lines. You can find links to our website, our social media, and our Patreon in the episode description. And we'd love to have you join us on Patreon. We're really enjoying spending more time with our supporters and being able to engage with them as we watch through the show. We want to thank Kimberly Kuniko at Lacelet for designing our logo. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Until then, geek, geek out! out.